ברוך השם, you're a bad Jew. שלום. Welcome back to another episode of Bad Jew. With me today is Eli Eisenberg, and you would assume by his hat that he is in San Francisco, but as a matter of fact, he's not. And if you look in the background behind you, that's not San Francisco at all. With the name that you see right there on YouTube, he is in Netanya, Israel right now. Eli, you're in an incredible place, and also it's Don over there. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. I normally get up about this time, but getting my day going is takes a bit longer but hey for you Chaz here I am and and actually when I when I set this up it was pitch black behind me I mean it's it's, it's not even quite sunrise so you're going to see it get brighter as we as we proceed but that's the Mediterranean Sea behind me it's really beautiful there's this term in film which is mise-en-scene and mise-en-scene really is just a fancy way of saying that the background of a scene really adds more meaning to what's happening And this is a perfect example of that, where we just really get this full scene of, you know, right. Israel. And it's, it's really perfect for the topic of today's episode. But before we get to today's topic, we have the right of entry onto the podcast called the Four Minute Bad Jew Challenge, where you tell your life story in four minutes. Are you oh, ready, Ellie? I, I, I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. For starters, I just want to point out that this is not a virtual background. <laughs> this is... <laughs> actually live the mediterranean sea behind me I convincing was... green screen <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you can do this with a green screen can you anyways sorry for the, for not in this studio <laughs> uh, i was born in los angeles of the old cedars of lebanon hospital before it merged with sinai and became cedar sinai the big medical center my father was from brooklyn my mother was from new jersey uh, they met in california after world war ii uh, my father came from my fairly religious background, but that kind of all fell by the wayside when his mother died at, at, he was the, at the age of eight. Um, my mother came from a very secular reform background and, and together they, uh, as a compromise, uh, decided to be in a conservative synagogue because it's kind of seemed like halfway in between. Didn't have a lot of Yiddishkeit growing up. And, you know, I can talk about other things that were of interest to me as growing up, but I'm going to focus on, on my Jewish uh, journey more than anything else. You know, we, We had seders and Passover. We lit candles and had presents on Hanukkah. My father schlepped me to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There was no Shabbos. There was no Sukkot. There was no Shavuot. There was no Kashrut. But, you know, it was you know, a typical American story. We lived in the middle of the San Fernando Valley, the Sepulveda, which I think is now called uh, North Hills. I went to Monroe High School. I had mostly Jewish friends, but not exclusively Jewish friends. Uh, I was never involved in any... Any, any Jewish youth organizations. I, I grew up primarily as a secular Jew. I mean, I, I had a bar mitzvah. And then after my 13th birthday, I just kind of said, okay, I'm done with all of that. In 1972, I met my wife at uh, UCLA. We were 19 years old. And I remember going to her house for a Friday night dinner. Her, her father made Kiddush, mother lit candles. And then we went to Valley Beth Shalom afterwards. And You know, I, I felt a connection that I hadn't felt in my entire life, just being in a Jewish environment. And it, it kind of lit a, a spark in me. And we started, started, you know, our dating became serious. We went every Friday night with her to the synagogue. And I started to become more interested. And we ultimately got married. 
at, at, the, at the ripe age of 21 in a conservative synagogue at Valley Beth Shalom, and then moved to Northern California. It's interesting because my wife, you know, I'll tell you something very interesting, to me anyway. Before we got married, my wife said she wanted to keep a kosher home. And I'd never kept kosher. And, but, you know, I was young and stupid and in love, and I figured, what the heck, you know, I'll just go along with it. But I asked her why. She said, look, it's 1974. We grew up in, a, in, in uh, a, you know, where we started to grow up in a time in the 1950s, early 60s, where Jews married Jews, and the intermarriage was not very prevalent. And the 1960s changed all of that. By, by 1969, the, the intermarriage rate was, 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 was out of control, if, uh, if I can use that term. And she said to me, she said, I want to make sure we have Jewish grandchildren. And she said, keeping kosher is something that you do that connects you to your Judaism every single day of your life. Every time you sit down to eat something, you have to identify as a Jew by asking the question, is this kosher? Can I eat this? Well, how long has it been since I had milk? How long has it been since I had meat? And, and I went along with it. We moved to Northern California a year after a marriage. Me to go to graduate school at Cal. That's how I became a Giants fan. We lived in the Bay Area. My friends I grew up with can't, can't accept ever that I root for the Giants when I grew up uh, in, in Dodger Town. That's another story. Um, you know, I started going to synagogue regularly, taking classes, learning, growing, taking on a little bit more. You know, we, we were keeping, keeping, we were participating in all of the holidays. Shabbat became a regular thing for us. It wasn't Shomer Shabbos. It wasn't, you know, not driving or not working or, you know, but, but, you know, making Kiddush every night, going to, every Friday night, going to shul every Shabbos morning. And, and so that journey kind of to, kind of started to progress and then on on august 26th 1979 a miracle happened and you'd say it's not a miracle but i, w I watched the birth of my son and i just it hit me in a way that i can't even begin to describe i said i i couldn't accept that something like this could happen without some divine, you know, and, and, and kids are born every minute of every day throughout the world, but it, it just hit me that I just witnessed a miracle. I remember going outside of Herrick Hospital in Berkeley. I must have walked around the hospital seven or eight or nine or ten times, and I was talking to God for the first time in my life, just talking to I said, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are. I just know that, that, that what I just witnessed is proof enough to me that, that you exist and I want to learn more. I want to get closer to you. Fast forward again, we, you know, we moved down to the San Jose area. We lived there for seven years. I became one of the Chazanim, one of the people who led services in our conservative synagogue, Beth David in Saratoga. I was on the ritual committee. I was going to classes once a week with the rabbi and, and our, our growth continued. I remember when I, when I, interviewed at verbatim the first time in my life i told a recruiter i don't work on saturday and so i stopped working on saturday and so um you know that that took place and and you know we 
you know, like, a, like slowly we just became more and more involved in, in our Jewish lives. Fast forward again, 1986, we moved to Southern California where I grew up and, and we went to a, a few different conservative synagogues and for some reason that none of them clicked with me. So we ended up going to Chabad in the Gora Hills. And I started learning with Rabbi Brisky. And then I started, you know, I decided I'm going to keep Shabbos. I mean, really keep Shabbos and, you know, stop eating out. You know, we used to eat out in non-kosher restaurants, but we wouldn't order meat or shellfish or, you know, you know, kosher light, I guess. But, you know, the growth took place there as well. We, you know, became completely Shomer Shabbat, became completely kosher. I remember looking at myself in the mirror one morning and I saw this guy with, with the kippah and tzitzis and I thought, where, where did this Orthodox Jew come from? So, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the, kind of the journey. You know, I was for 37 years, I was a Gabbai in Chazan at Chabad of Kaneo uh, in the Gur Hills. And along the way, you know, Sammy and I actually took our, our honeymoon here in Israel in 1974, 75. We actually left on, on the eve of the big non-Jewish holiday. And we were here for three weeks and then we came, we didn't come again until 2005. We came back in 2006 and then we were here in 2018 for our grandson's bar mitzvah. And every time I came to Israel, I, I felt a pull. I felt like this feels more like home than, than home in, in Los Angeles. And in, in 2020, we had you know, a decent financial event that made it possible for us to, to, to come. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll save the, you know, I know that that's one of the, the, the main topic of the discussion. So I'll save the details for your our dialogue, but we finally pulled the trigger and we moved here four months ago and, and here we are. And I'm sure there are a lot of details in my life that I left out. I will say the commercial, I'm a, 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 a fractional chief financial officer for startup companies, and I'm still working for my clients actively in in Southern California, it's all remote now. Although I did have a bunch of meetings when I was in California recently for a visit and I'm looking to network with Israeli startups and, and move some of my business over here. I've been doing yeah. that for more than 30 years. So there you go. How did I do? I think you did pretty well. You did go over the four minutes and I didn't want to be <laughs> rude. I didn't want to cut you off, but you still gave an incredible story. It just goes to prove a theory that I have is that when you're Jewish, there's no such thing as having a personal journey and a separate Jewish journey, it's all one and the same. Yeah, for sure. So I think that you told a really beautiful story. And I also want to say that I, I really, you know, appreciate that you kind of highlight these different stages of your life so well. I wonder if one day it would ever behoove you to create a diagram of when you started taking up different practices in your life. I think it, I think it would. them to different, different life events that people could recognize. Mm. It'd be kind of interesting to see. Yeah, I wish I'd kept a diary. I, I I would be remiss if I didn't add that the greatest blessing in my life is my wife, who, who's been married to me, who's been putting up with me for nearly 50 years. But we're going to uh, have our 50th wedding anniversary in, in, in September of next year. So. Well, Baruch Hashem that she's put up with you all this time. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ellie, part of the reason why we know each other, a great reason, the main reason why we know each other is actually because we met through ProVisors. 
And another fellow member, a guest on this podcast as well, who I also met through ProVisors, is another gentleman by the name of Jason Cement. And another connection that we have is one of my most uh, favorite episodes that I, that I did with, Moshe, with Rabbi Moshe Brisky. And you mentioned him in your four-minute Bad You Challenge. He had such a profound impact on my life as well. And if it wasn't for how he treated my grandma growing up, I wouldn't have gone through the Jewish journey that I'm in now. So, uh-huh. you know, story for another time. If you want to go listen to that episode, you can. But, you know, just so many different dots to connect here that I just asked. Well, there's another really important dot that, that I think we have to mention in, in passing. That would be somebody named Joel Volk. Oh yeah, my dad. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who I've known, who I've known for a lot of years, also through provisors. One one day we'll get him on the podcast. I don't know yeah, how. I don't know why. <laughs> but Ellie, you've done something really special. You mentioned it toward the tail end of your bad Jew challenge, and that is that you moved to Israel. You've been there now for four months, and some would say it's a blessing. Others would say you moved to a war zone four months before it happened. So we got to ask, was it worth moving to Israel? Oh, my God. A hundred percent. A hundred percent worth moving. Now, look, we didn't ask for a war. I didn't, I didn't come here to start one. We moved in August, and it was nearly two months to the day uh, when, when the war broke out on Simchat Torah. And then people started reaching out to me and said, look, do you regret it? Are you sorry? Are you scared? Are you coming back? And I, and I had all I could do is emphatically say no to all of those. I said, you don't understand. If I were back in California with you, I would feel the same hopelessness and powerlessness that I felt during past intifadas, during this, during the Yom Kippur War, and during you know all of the the terrorist attacks that had taken place. I said, I said, you can write checks and you can pray and you can say, you know, recite books of Psalms and, and we do all that as well, but you can't run down to the local hotel and deliver clothes and food to refugees. You can't get in your car and, and, you know, pack boxes for, you know, supplies and extra food to send to the, you know, to, to the border where, the, where the troops need it. You can't put your arms around around somebody whose whose son just got called up and 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 who's worried I mean, you have to understand that, that to, it, it's it, it's a blessing and an honor to be here with our brothers and sisters and and to be able to support them in any way we can and 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 to also see with our own eyes and and our own senses what it's really like here and not have everything filtered through you know the eyes of the western media i wouldn't want to be any place else in the world right now and that and that notwithstanding the the rise of, of anti-semitism we've seen throughout the rest of the world which is another topic that i'm sure you're going to ask about but just you know th- this is i this is where i belong i love it here but it's not as crazy and unsafe as you might believe i mean you know look i you know, we picked we picked well we're in Natanya. The the nearest rockets make it about 15 miles south of here, which you know seems really close, but it's not. And about 25 miles north of here, so we're kind of in this this bubble of safety. And, and even then, you know, we have this miracle called the Iron Dome that intercepts all those rockets. You know, you know, they, and for some reason they they know which ones are going to fall in open, unpopulated areas, so they just let those fall. 
and I don't think there's been a single death or serious injury from a rocket. I mean, yeah, we've had some, obviously what happened on October 7th, and we've lost, never, we've lost like 120 soldiers fighting in Gaza. But the rest of the country, I don't want to say it's life as usual, but it's kind of life as usual. People are going to work and they're going to the market and they're, you know, they're walking to synagogue on, on Shabbat and it feels, generally feels safe. I mean, yeah, they have to run into safe rooms, you know, for 30 to 45 minutes when the rockets are coming. But, and, and that's, that's mostly because of shrapnel, not because of any explosions. But yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't want to be anyplace else right now. Well, thank God that you are safe in the Tanya. And also thank God for the Iron Dome. And also may the 120 soldiers that you mentioned, may their memories be a blessing. I wanted to say that, you know, the Israeli people are an incredibly resilient people. You're learning to integrate into that resilience yourself. Most places on earth, they're used to having a rainy season or they're used to earthquakes like we are here in California. But in Israel, there's a rocket season every now and then. That's basically what it is. And that's kind of a crazy concept to wrap my brain around is that People live their daily lives and just adjust as if it is another weather or climate season. Right. Hopefully after this war, we never have to worry about that quote unquote season again, but it's still just a show of resilience for the Israeli people. I'm well, curious. The other thing, the other thing, Chaz, just to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but. Okay. The achdut, the unity in this country is off the charts. Yeah. It's off the charts, and it's a wonderful thing to see, to feel. doesn't matter if you're religious or not religious or, or modern Orthodox or Haredi or, I mean, just people are all, you know, we're all in this together. You know, we're seeing for the first time really in, in Israel's history unprecedented numbers of, of ultra-Orthodox Jews, you know, enlisting in the IDF. They've had to, they've had to set up special training platoons to, to fast track these people so they can be, you know, these, you know, they can be ready to, to, to fight. It's just. You know, it's amazing. It, it is really amazing. Is amazing. Yeah. Ellie, the question I wanted to ask you was that resilience that you've had to adjust to now that you're moved there, you had to adjust to it pretty quickly. You had a two month introduction period and then, oh, here's our first war. Have fun, kiddo. Right. Um, how has that how has that tested the willpower of you and how has that tested the willpower of your family you know it's it, it you know Chaz if you were here it's a question you wouldn't even be asking what does that mean because well because you're you're over there and you're not feeling what's here it, it hasn't really tested us the biggest test we've had is is trying to navigate the medical system you know we're used to Kaiser and and so you come to Israel, and you have two you have two things. You have the language barrier, which isn't terrible, although it can be frustrating at times when you get a, a, an automatic phone message from from Maccabi uh, Maccabi, which is the the medical system. And I don't want to dwell on this too much because it kind of goes off off field. But they don't accept any of your medical records here. You have to, you know, so, so you have to go have lab tests and EKGs and bone density tests. And, and it, it's like, it's like they have to rebuild your entire set of medical records. 
but you know as far as as far as resilience is concerned it, you know it's it's and and i look if we had bought a place up on the lebanese border i'm sure i'd have a different answer but you know it's you know every day we look out on this my wife sits and watches the sunset over the mediterranean except the, except when there's a rainstorm and it's been a it's been a pretty smooth transition you know? wow wow amazing and when you you know there's there was an amazing moment i wasn't actually expecting to bring this up but it you reminded me of this you know over a year ago is when i did my last trip to israel uh-huh. and on one of the last days we went to asia torah's yeshiva that they have there and i don't even know if i ever told the story on this podcast but when i was there they they had a day where they they first were going to have a, they were going to pair us up with a current yeshiva student because they wanted us to go see what it's like there. And we would spend an hour with them, conversing with them, learning what the yeshiva is like. They really wanted us to go to the yeshiva. Then they took us to a panel with their star students. And at the panel, I asked the question, what did you have to sacrifice to be here? And these are all like American Jews. These are all international Jews that uh, came in that were on the panel that were talking to us, you know, the, all these yeshiva potentials that were on the trip. And I remember... You, very much not being satisfied with the answer I heard. There was, the, there was this one very charismatic yeshiva student who proudly said, nothing, nothing. Hashem had me on my back the entire time. I didn't have to sacrifice a single thing. He was, he was so over the top about it that I actually got kind of annoyed. I was like, come on, you <laughs> had to sacrifice something. Every time you move, every time you immigrate somewhere, you sacrifice something. So give me the real pitch here, right? And then later on, we met up with a rabbi. And it was all, it was like 30 people sitting around a rabbi at this one tiny table. And he told this story. He said that when Abraham destroyed all of his father's idols, God said to him to go to the land of Israel. But he didn't just say, go to the land of Israel. He first said, leave your nation, then leave your community, and then leave your father's home. And do you know what's weird about what he's, what, what God commanded? This part was fascinating. God told him to leave his home in reverse order because you first leave your father's home, then you leave your community and then you leave your nation. That's what you did technically in that chronological order. But God says, no, leave your nation, then leave your community and then leave your father's home. And when I heard that. It started to click to me as to what you have to sacrifice yeah. in order to do that. Do you still feel American? Oh, goodness. And then do you uh, still yeah, I mean, feel like yeah. you're connected to your community? And then do you still feel like you're connected to your extended family? Okay. That's a, that's a great question. When, when, when God said, uh, the place of your birth, actually which is a way of saying, you know, leave the place that, that, of your original connection. Right. I, you know, look, I, I do miss some people in my, in my community. I miss my provisor's community. When we, my son, our son, uh, his family are still in, in Florida. I mean, look, and my mother is, is still in, in, in Malibu. You know, thank God we have lots of ways electronically to connect via video, talk to our mother my mother almost every day, talk to my son almost every day. But, but yeah, look, I, I miss being able to 
call up a client and say, let's get together, you know, in person. Uh, I miss the in-person provisors meetings. I don't know if you know this about me, but, but, you know, I consider, you know, Rogue One, which is, you know, officially the, the Silicon Beach 2 group of provisors to be my second family. I was the group, I launched that group in 2015. I was its group leader for, for eight years. I'm still a member on, on Zoom. When I planned my recent trip, because I you know, probably promised my mom that we'd come and visit, I, I made sure that it overlapped with, with, with a Rogue One meeting so I could be there in person. I, I do miss that. I miss, I miss going to the Expert Dojo Accelerator. I miss going to the, to the Stubbs Alderton Markley's Precelerator and being in, in that, that high-tech startup business environment. That's not to say that I can't serve my clients remotely and, and see them on Zoom. It's not the same. It's, it's never been the same for me to be on Zoom as, as to be in person. I wish I could do this podcast in person, except that you wouldn't get this. Oh, the sun's up. And, uh, you know, I miss, I miss, you know, some of the, the style of davening in our shul is, is, is different than the one here in, in Agamim. Agamim is a neighborhood in Netanya. But I, but I, having said that, I, I love it. I don't, I don't pine for Southern California. I don't think about it very often. You know, there are moments where I think, God, you know, it would be nice to be able to, you know, get in my car and, and you know, have a coffee or a drink with, with, you know, you, know, you, you miss people. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line, right? You, you, you know, we're, we're social beings and we connect with other social beings and I don't really have yet a network of friends here, although we do have a few friends, a few other people who've made Aliyah. But you know, that's, that's it. Do I miss, you know, places not really i mean you know it's it's not like you can't find a kosher restaurant in israel it's not like <laughs> you can't it's not like you can't find uh good kosher wine in, in almost all the markets there is one really big problem in israel I don't, I don't know how to solve it but there's there's a tremendous shortage of of good bourbon you walk into really? a liquor you walk into a liquor store and they have got scotch and wine you know, you know and they may have one or two bourbons and I think I, you can count on 10 fingers and I love bourbon, but not that I'm a huge drinker, but when we were in California <laughs> recently, I, I came back with seven bottles of bourbon and put a couple in each suitcase because there's stuff that you just can't, you just can't get here. For all you whiskey distillers out there, I think that's the opportunity. That's the business opportunity in Israel right there. Either that or become an importer. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ellie, I, I want to thank you for being vulnerable and again, being, you know, realistic. I, I very much, I think my listeners very much value authenticity here. And I, I really do appreciate you, you know, opening up the way you just did. And I think there's one thing that I envy about, there's one major thing that I envy. There's a lot of things I envy about your situation. I wish I was in Israel right now, but one of the major things that I very much envy, and there is a, there was a, an episode from the Times of Israel's uh, daily briefing podcast that they have about how anti-Semitism internationally has gotten so insane that right now you're, Ellie, almost guaranteed in your community not to experience anti-Semitism. Whereas, you know, when I'm walking around with my nice light blue colorful yarmulke, 
I'm always wondering, will this Jewish symbol attract some kind of animosity towards me? And that hasn't happened to me directly yet in person. I think being in West LA, there is a certain sense of acceptance that's better than other parts of LA and other parts of the world for sure. But, you know, I was wondering if you could speak to that and also, yeah, you know, do, do you, I mean, basic question, do you feel safe? And also, what do you say to other Jews internationally that don't feel safe? I feel safer here than any place else in the world. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going, to, going to start with, you know, I'm a Chabadnik and I had the, the honor to be able to go and, and see the Rebbe a few times before he was, before he passed. Many times people would go to the Rebbe for advice and for blessings. And it wasn't unusual for somebody whose child was going to go off to learn in Israel during times when, when, when there was more terrorism than, than less. And they, you know, they would, hoping that the Rebbe would say, you know, keep, keep them here in the United States. And the Rebbe always quoted chapter 11, verse 12 of the book of Deuteronomy. I'm not going to say it in Hebrew, but it basically, I'll paraphrase it. It basically says that it's, you know, it, it's, it's a land where God has his eyes on the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Go look it up. She said, Hashanah, Hashanah. And he said, Israel is the safest place for a Jew to be. Now, those of us who are really religious and believe that everything is by divine providence and believe that you know our time is our time when the, when the angel of death wants to take you, it doesn't matter if you're in Netanya or in Brooklyn or in a plane or, or you know, on a boat or in a car on a freeway. And, and so um, I feel safer here than I would anywhere else in the world. A, because the Rebbe said, safer than anywhere else in the world would be because you know i I, as you said you know the one thing we're never going to have here never is an anti-semitic government i mean you know and i'm not gonna i I don't want to turn this into a political discussion but but you know there are anti-semites in united states congress and unfortunately sadly frighteningly that that seems to be growing you know, fortunately, they don't hold a majority in Congress yet. But, and I'm not a prophet, Chess. But I started saying to my wife, I want to say 12 years ago, maybe longer. I said, "We're in trouble here," and and everybody thought I was crazy. They they got to the point where they said they just didn't want to hear it anymore. I said, "Don't understand." And 2016, when when President Trump said, "I'm going to to Washington to drain the swamp," I remember. I remember during one of his speeches standing up in front of the television and saying, you idiot, the swamp isn't in Washington. It's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's in Palo Alto, California. It's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's in Austin, Texas. The swamp is on colleges, university campuses of this country. And if you're not going to defund the colleges and universities, you're not going to drain any swamps because those people are the future leaders and they've been, been indoctrinated. Actually, when I was a teaching assistant at, at, at Cal in 1975, 1976, I don't remember the exact year, but 
I remember when the UN passed a resolution, Zionism is racism. This is 1976. And I had college students coming up to me, students ask, asking me about that. I thought, wow, that's pretty remarkable that, that these young people are hearing this and accepting it. And I could just, you know, I could just see what was happening on colleges and universities, article after article after article, that the world was just kind of closing its eyes and ears to. And I said, I said to my wife, I said, Sandy, you got to understand something. Your eyes are in Washington and you can say all you want that, well, you know, what if there's a change in leadership in Washington? I said, you have to project forward. We have a whole generation of people, young people who are going to be the future leaders of this country who are being indoctrinated that Israel is an apartheid state, that Israel is a genocidal state, that Israel is, a, you know, and, and they don't, they never separate in their minds Israel from the Jewish people. They don't. And, and you can say that, you know, and, and they say it publicly. Say, no, we're not talking about Jews. It's not anti-Semitic. It's just anti-Israel. It's BS, okay? If you're anti-Israel, you're anti-Semitic. And, 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 and it, it, it's just remarkable how anti-Semites use language to their advantage. To yeah. justify, to justify their hatred. I said, we have to get out of here. I said, Sandy, we're going to be seven years old. We have to get out of here because I don't want to be stuck here. You know, when we're in our eighties trying to get out, you know, I want to go while we're still healthy, while we're still, you know, still have enough youthfulness where we can enjoy our lives in Israel. And, and the, and the other thing I kept saying is, that, you know, quoting, and I don't know, it's been attributed to Churchill. It's been attributed to Einstein. It's been attributed to a dozen different people. There's a saying that says, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Crusades, Inquisition, the Holocaust, Soviet Russia, and so on and so on and so on. You think the United States is different? I'll tell you right now that, yeah, watching the politics that you're kind of describing, they are happening in real time. There was a hearing in Congress with the presidents of, well, who was it? MIT? MIT, was it? Harvard, and Penn. Har Harvard and Penn, right? Elitist Ivy League schools. Right, right. And it, it, yeah. Best of the best, that, right? That, that interview, though, the, that conversation made my, my blood boil. They couldn't answer that calling for genocide of students is somehow not considered harassment because it's a context-dependent decision. But I, I, you know, like you said, these colleges are indoctrinated and, you know, my, as I've pointed out many times on my, on this podcast here, the closest claim to fame that I have to the Jewish community is my lawsuit, Volk versus CSU Board of Trustees, where I sued my college campus for systemic anti-Semitism. And yeah, we won. We put a little dent in this fight, this uphill battle in anti-Semitism. And we instilled a certain system within the CSU system that hopefully is being enforced. But I'll tell you right now is that you know, that anti-Semitism, the levels of hatred that we're seeing obviously isn't happening in Israel. That's a great deal of why I'm envious. I've also been really feeling lately under the past two administrations, not just this administration, but the past two administrations that we've seen in U.S. politics that, yeah, there's support for Israel, but the support is finite. And I was with strings attached, always. Yeah, it's uh, strings attached, but also you would be dumb to assume that we always see this, this illustration of the American flag tied up with the Israeli flag, and you have two people holding it on both sides. 
I don't think it's going to be like that forever. We even just had a, you know, award-winning reporter come on, talk about how this war in Israel is going to impact U.S. elections next year. And, you know, right now it's still, we're still in the fog of war, so to speak. We're still in the fog of political war, but it's too early to say what's going to happen. Yet, I do also sense that, you know, times are getting so tense that people are going to be making decisions emotionally and they're going to be justifying them logically. You know, it's, this is the language that you were, that you were insinuating is that there, that language, the logical language of these F of these buzzwords are going to get, put America in a difficult place and really just brainwash and indoctrinate generations to come. And so we have to project forward. Whereas in oh, Israel, that's not happening. Yeah. And I, I have been, I've never considered more in my life until like recently moving to Israel. I, I, I am serious about that. Like I've never wanted to move to Israel more now than ever before. Well, I will tell you, you can continue to conduct business here. You know, that, that was the, what I like to refer to as the great gift of COVID, not the COVID, not that COVID was a gift, but you know, it used to be that my clients expected to see me in their office. They, yeah. they just did. I had to go you know, get in my car and, and meet with them in their office. And now, you know, I, I reached out to every one of my clients, I want to say eight months ago, I'm moving to Israel. I know a lot of fractional chief financial officers. Be happy to introduce you to my colleagues. Every one of them said, no, we're good. As long as I can get you on a Zoom call, we're good. So I'm still working. I, you know, look, like you said, you know, it's, it's no, nobody here is taking their, their keep out off. You know, I, we have, I don't, you can't see it right now very clearly because the wind isn't blowing, but we have a big Israeli flag on our balcony that, that blows out over the street. And it's, it's actually pretty remarkable when the wind kicks up. And I, I took a video of it and sent it to my, and showed it to, well, it wasn't a video, it was a live WhatsApp chat my seven-year-old granddaughter in Florida. And she said, she said, Zayda, aren't you afraid? I said, afraid of what? She said, they're going to know, they're going to see your flag and know you're Jewish. I said, Tehila, we're all Jewish here. <laughs> I, said, I said, no one's taking down their mezuzahs. Nobody's hiding their, their, their yarmulkes. Nobody's, you know, we're walking around proud. Yeah, yeah we're, you know, we're concerned about war. We're mourning the death of every soldier. And, you know, we want, you know, we want peace. Uh, uh, but, hey, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to be, any, by the way, when, when you're ready to come visit, let me know. You got it. Uh, I, can, I, got I, can, it. I, can, I can hook you up with some, some people who could help you, you know, cons- hey. you know look into the, the options that you have. And, and also I want, when I get there, I want the connections to good bourbon. I know by then you'll have that problem solved. Uh, Ellie, should well, people want, uh, I was going to say, Ellie, should people want to connect with you? What's the best way for people to reach out? Well, they can reach out on LinkedIn. I don't usually use LinkedIn as a, um, as a primary source of communication, but you know, they can, they can reach out on LinkedIn. They can go to my website, uh, com. Uh, and get contact information there. I, I you know, if, if I give my email address out, I'll get inundated with emails and I'll probably miss half of them. So I, you know, I, I'm not a, a adverse to doing that, but I, I don't think it's, oh, what the hell? 
like let me well, well get, we can put that in the show notes we don't yeah go to, ahead go we'll ahead put in the show notes of this episode you'll send me the information after but ellie i want to thank you for being on the podcast i want to thank you for being vulnerable here on the show and talking with us and talking with me about you know the state of israel the state of your community what you had to give to be there and what your what your life is like now so God bless you. God watch over you and keep you safe and may you and your family continue to thrive in the beautiful city of Netanya, Israel. Well, thank you, Chaz. I, I appreciate the honor. Let's just, you know, all continue to pray for peace and, 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 and hope that this war ends quickly and with a, you know, with a good result for our country. And I hope to see you here in the Holy Land soon. I hope so too. Okay. Amen to all of that. Bye for now. Right. We'll Shabbat see you next shalom. Week. Shalom.